Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Nowhere else can you find this kind of wonderful information focusing on state-level issues. There's a whole lot of shows that give you those national headlines, national conversations, and a lot of times you'll hear them covering the same exact things. But if you want to know about what's going on right in your own backyard, if you want to be the most interesting person around the water cooler who can bring information to your friends, to your family that maybe they don't know, well, you're listening to the right show, the Andrew Kubreder Show. And to start us off, I want to pay special attention to a tweet Andy Bashir had recently sent out. And uh, it seems pretty innocuous initially, of course, when you first read it. But when you dig down into the implications of what is said, uh, you can make a lot of questions and, and it can be kind of, uh, it can lead to some extra government spending. And it, and it begs a question about what is government's role in these situations. So Governor Andy Bashir tweeted out, these days, internet access isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. My better Kentucky plan will invest to make sure every family across the Commonwealth has access to reliable, affordable, high-speed internet. There's a few things I want to zero in on. First, let me zero in on this My Better Kentucky plan, right? So whether or not you think it is government's role to provide internet access or to invest quote unquote, in those types of things, um, you know, put that to the side for a minute because, well, let's talk about that. Actually, let's dig into it. So in our modern age, we have so much uh, government assistance that it turns things that otherwise government would have no interest in into now suddenly you can pitch it as government having an interest. For an example, having internet access uh, may be something or necessity or, or a service that rural parts of Kentucky, if they can get reliable high-speed internet access, well, they can engage in remote work and other types of uh, uh, labor and work over the internet that requires the internet. And then in turn, they can move off public assistance. Uh, they can contribute to the tax base. So then that in turn now helps out the economy of Kentucky. You save money on them, uh, of course, having to give them those welfare benefits uh, that you need to put forward, but also at the same time, they become a tax paying citizen. The fact that government's so big and the fact that government provides so much welfare makes it now a conservative position for government to quote unquote, invest in these types of things and call it an investment where government can earn a return because, well, if you're moving people off of welfare onto that, then, well, that helps your bottom line. And so I recognize that, but, but let us first focus on a few things. One, why is it that rural Kentucky and parts of Kentucky have such a hard time and trouble sometimes with internet? Well, I want to take you back um, to, I believe, 2007-ish. And there was a technology coming out uh, that is actually here in Kentucky. They're working on it, which was internet uh, over electricity lines. And basically what it was is you could take a Wi-Fi receiver and you could plug it into any single plug in your house. And the power company could be delivering internet to you across the power lines. This was something that they're researching in, they're putting investments into, they're growing in, and parts of Kentucky started getting that offered to them. Until 
the government stepped in and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you can't do that. And there was a court ruling that actually made it to where power companies were unable and unallowed to sell internet. And now you had to string new lines and everything. Because, of course, if you could deliver it over power lines, well, there's already power lines strung up all over rural Kentucky. So that would create Internet access right away. But that was not allowed. Can't do it. So people abandoned researching that type of Internet delivery service. And instead, that opened up to broadband. Now, it is funny hearing... Uh, Andy Bashir talk about how he suddenly has a plan for internet. What was funny is during uh, 2020, 2021, uh, there was a massive amounts of grants coming down from the federal government, and everything else for those who had a broadband plan in place, for those who had an internet access plan in place for rural Kentucky, where just rural areas or just to get internet more to other areas. And of course, uh, Kentucky and I believe Mississippi were the only two states where the governor hadn't put in place a broadband internet access plan. And because we didn't have that plan, we weren't able to access those funds or spend those funds on that because Andy Bashir failed on the subject of internet access. But here he is now saying his greater Kentucky plan will go ahead and deliver on something that we've already missed out on funding on because he failed to get a plan in place. However, I do want to focus on that first term he made, the, the first sentence he made in this post. These days, internet access isn't a luxury, it's a necessity. Now, I get uncomfortable anytime I start hearing, especially Democrats in government, branding around words like it is a necessity because that makes it one on par with food and shelter. And of course, for those liberals, for the people in power, they believe that if something is a necessity, now government has a role in somehow ensuring it is delivered to you. And this doesn't really coincide with what our founders viewed the role of government as. In fact, if we go back here, Jefferson, this is a quote from Thomas Jefferson, argued that to take from one in order to spare to others who or whose fathers have not exercised equal industry and skill is to violate arbitrarily the first principle of association, the guarantee to everyone, the free exercise of his industry and fruits that it was acquired by it. Essentially, Jefferson is saying that, well, if, if, if government views something as a necessity, if government believes they need to provide something to others, well, they then have to take from those who they themselves have earned through fruits of their labor or the labor of, of course, their prior ancestors. And that everybody has the opportunity for industry. And if they don't take up on it, and if they don't decide to get involved in that, well, to to take from one and give to another, it's wrong. And of course it is. That's theft, right? That's when you hear people say taxation is theft. That's what they're talking about. They're saying that to take from one and give to another is theft. You're stealing, uh, especially when government, of course, uses force. And while living in Europe, Benjamin Franklin, he's stated this, in different countries, the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves, and of course became poor. And on the contrary, the less was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. And so while I am not sitting here trying to grab internet access to be this end-all, be-all, absolutely biggest form of you know, wasteful government welfare programs, there is. Make no mistake, I'm not trying 
to do that. But what I do want to point out, though, is when we hear people in government branding around the word necessity, they're implying that government has some role into it. And I would argue government doesn't even necessarily have a role in ensuring that you have shelter and food that should generally fall to private charity. Now, of course, there is arguments that the local governments from the founders, the local governments, when somebody has no family, uh, is, is, is unable to take care of themselves due to injury or something such as that, disabilities, and has no family that should be taking care of them, their responsibility as family members, well, then perhaps government, local government has a very specific role in providing that. It should be local government because, of course, of course, local government best knows people's situation, individuals, accountability. I think it's also important that when we dole out those types of charities that you have to look somebody in the eye as you get it to be an encouragement for you to be able to stand, of course, on your own. But this very concept that government can't solve all your problems, as I talked about yesterday, is a concept foreign to most of those in government. They're unable to say, well, you know, you should be able to provide for yourself. And that's why Amy Bashir throwing around words like internet is a necessity makes me uncomfortable because a necessity when it comes to liberals means they want to guarantee it. And government, of course, can't guarantee anything without stealing from others. It's very careful, very specific when we pick and choose our words and we want to pay attention to what those in power are saying so we can draw, draw the kind of greater conclusions and figure out where this is going. Well, coming up after this, we're going to be going over some changes going on in the legislature, possibly some conversations about bills, things like that going on. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. As always, if you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. You know, normally about this time, of the year, I will have discussed dozens of bills on this show. I will have gone through some things that we could expect, things we need to push on. I will have better instructions, would have, of what you should be talking to your legislators about. But for some reason, <laughs> the legislature has decided they don't want to pre-post bill requests. They want to wait until session before they make that kind of information public. And the reason why? Well, of course, they want to be able to relieve pressure off themselves. If you are a common citizen, the only way you can weigh in on bills is, well, in order to know what's coming down the pipe. And this legislature under this current leadership has gotten increasingly hostile towards the idea that we, the citizens, should be aware of what's going on. And this hasn't gone unnoticed. In fact, recently, the League of Women Voters um, did a study looking at some of the, the behavior of this legislature uh, as far as its desire to keep secret uh, what's going on behind closed doors and to keep it from you. And they identified a few key things. And they put together... Uh, a report, a study identifying what they call patterns of increasing use of fast track maneuvers that make it per, that make participation more difficult. 
And here's some of those procedures that they identified as a problem. First, giving a bill a reading before any standing committee has taken action on it. So one of the ways that we as citizens know whether or not we need to care about a bill every year, hundreds of bills are proposed. Um, you know, sometimes thousands are proposed for the legislature to consider. Every single legislature can legislator, sorry, can file as many bills as they wish, and these show up as bill requests. Now, for a vast, vast majority of them, you don't really need to worry about them. Maybe they do things that you agree with, don't agree with, but if they do things you you don't agree with, um, until they're moved to a committee, it doesn't really signal to us we need to pay attention to it. It's not going to pass. You know, uh, there's Democrats that propose bills like uh, I think every year Rachel Roberts has proposed a UBI universal basic income bill in order to provide a thousand or two thousand dollars or whatever the amount is that she arbitrarily has picked as a guaranteed income to every citizen in Kentucky. This is a very left liberal bill proposed by a very left liberal person that will never see the light of day. It will never get a hearing. It's a bill maybe they propose so they can tell their constituents they did it, while at the same time they know it'll never accomplish anything. And so there's no reason to bother your legislators about those bills. And so the best way to know if a bad bill is getting any kind of motion is whether or not it gets a hearing in one of the committees. Once a bill gets moved to the hearing status in a committee, well, now you know that's the first step. For those of you unaware of, of how the process works now, to kind of give you an idea, a bill gets proposed. And then the Committee on Committees <laughs> assigns that bill to a committee if they choose to in the House. In the Senate, the rule has been they have to assign it to a committee. But in the House, the, rule, the, the, the Committee on Committees, which is made up of leadership, assigns that bill to a committee based upon the content. So if it's something about a new uh, a law regulating the judiciary side of things, it goes between before the Judiciary Committee. If it's a, a law about economic development, it goes between between the Economic Development Committee, so on and so forth, where then they will have, then the chair can decide whether or not they want to pick that bill up out of uh, the pool of bills that they have and list it for a hearing. So that gives the chair some power. And then that hearing happens, and then it's voted on whether or not they want to recommend this bill to the rest of the floor. Once the bill's voted on, it goes forward now into a pool of bills that the um, caucus can now call to the full body. And if leadership, the the rules committee meets, they'll meet to decide what bills they want to put on the orders of the day, generally speaking, or they meet to decide what bills they want to move forward and leadership calls them forward. And then once that's done, the floor leader then calls out bills to be considered and voted on from the majority. So the majority leader in the Senate, the floor leader in the House, will pick bills out of that pool to go ahead and call for people to vote on. And along that way, so along that way, let's say you have a good bill, you got to wait for it if you're in the House, it to get to assigned to a committee, it could just sit in a pool to never be assigned. You got to wait for the bill then to be called in committee, and it could just never be called in committee. Then it's got to pass that committee. And then it sits in a pool of bills to be called by the floor leader. And it may never get called. And then if it does get called, then it gets voted on. And then it gets sent to the other body, the Senate, if it's coming out of the House. And then the Senate up 
has to assign that to a committee. And then that committee decides whether or not they want to call the bill to have a hearing. Then it has to pass that committee and then it goes to the floor for uh, a vote. And if the bill changed at all after it leaves the House and the Senate, well, then you have to have a concurrence vote where it comes back to the House and the entire body gets to vote one time, yes or no, on whether they want to ratify the new bill as is. And a, a law states that you have to give bills readings before they can be called onto the floor. And so what they're identifying here is that before a standing committee, so bills can be quote unquote fast tracked. And that's what they're talking about. Patterns of increasing use of fast track maneuvers. So this is a way of just bypassing kind of the committee and just throwing it onto the floor kind of immediately uh, without a committee really having a chance to um, discuss it. Now, another procedure they uh, paid attention to is a quote-unquote fast-track maneuver, is adopting committee substitutes of bills with little discussion or public comment. So <laughs> um, this, is, this is very interesting. So um, when a committee, right, so there's a deadline to file bills. So if you want to file a bill, you have to get it filed by a certain deadline. Sometimes they file something called a shell bill. Uh, generally, you'll notice what those bills are. Not sometimes. Every year they file 10 or 15 shell bills. And those bills are bills that do nothing. They, they, a lot of times right now, there'll be bills that are to change a law from saying he to he or she or gender neutral language. Just change like a one little word that's not really important. And then if there needs to be a bill that leadership wants done, something leadership wants done after the deadline to file a bill, well, you'll call one of those shell bills forward into a committee, then submit what's called a committee substitute, which then they swap this shell bill for a bill that does something completely different. So it goes from he, she changing of language to uh, a bill where we're going to give $50 million to immigrants coming to Kentucky. And that was a real thing that happened in 2021. That's why I point that out. And so that will happen. But of course, the citizenry, me, you, have never read the new bill. We have not had a chance to reach out to our representatives on that committee or that committee as a whole and tell them how we feel about that bill. And if they're supposed to represent the people, well, then the people should always have a chance to weigh in on the bill. Another thing they notice is a fast tracking maneuver is taking floor votes within a day of final committee action on a bill. So uh, a committee passes the bill and then a day afterwards, the whole body's voting on it, and it doesn't give grassroots the opportunity to reach out to their constituents, to, to the people that listen to them, to reach out to the constituents of these representatives and voice their opinion to them. And then finally, adopting free conference committee reports within a day of being released. This is another way of fast tracking where basically the bills are moving forward very quickly and not giving an opportunity for the public to weigh in. And this is, of course, an issue. It's an issue I've seen. It's an issue you've seen. And, and that we see that even more of them not even showing us what the bills are now. So if you do want to see a bill called forward in a committee, and I, and I think of a, a House bill back in 2022 session, 
Savannah Maddox put forward a bill to ban vaccine mandates that we had to apply pressure on. It was stuck in a a committee on committees, and we had to come forward and apply a lot of pressure in protests for it to finally get moved into a committee, voted on, and then pulled from that and onto the floor. It took thousands of phone calls, thousands of, of, of emails, uh, organization of protests, everything else to get this bill moved. But without being able to have a bill request forward now, it's harder for us to organize and try to push forward these bills. Now, of course, the legislators say, well, we're doing this because we don't want to hear a bunch from voters on bills that, well, they're never going to move in the first place. So there's no reason for them to even tell us about it. That's their excuse. But of course, it's also because they don't want to feel pressured or forced to move bills forward. So how often are these being used? Well, this study looked at it, right? So in 1998, only 3% of bills in the House and 2% of bills in the Senate became law through these types of fast-tracked processes. Then, now in 2022, right? So 22 years later, 24 years later, sorry. 32% of House bills and 24% of Senate bills are being passed that way. That is a massive increase. Almost a quarter of all bills in the Senate and almost a third of all bills in the House are being passed through fast-track procedures like I talked about, giving little time for activists to get organized on the bill. Now, League of Women Voters, very liberal. Their problem with this process is probably a lot different than my problem. Um, you know, these types of processes really is, is and this behavior by leadership to try not to vote on important things is almost stopped uh, bills like Senate Bill 150 from being passed. We'll go over that and proposed changes now, proposed new rules coming into this session out of the House. Very exciting stuff. We'll have that after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you are back with The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. If you want to reach out to the show, remember, you can email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow.com. Before the break, we were talking about this League of Women Voters study uh, where they looked at fast-tracking procedures and have found that 1998, 3% of House bills and 2% of Senate bills use fast-tracking procedures or uh, that we kind of talked about in the last section. And now it's fully a quarter of Senate bills and one-third of House bills that follow this fast-track process. And the reason for this growth is because obviously the concern about quote unquote activists, the people weighing in on these bills is weighing heavier and heavier on leadership. One, they don't want the force of these bills to be heard and to go forward because they're concerned about maintaining their own seats if they're in purple districts and other seats. And so if they really call these bills forward and they have a lot of conservative action on them, well, one or two members might lose their seats. We'll still maintain a gigantic majority, but they can't have that. So they, they don't want that. But at the same time, uh, the reason for these actions is, well, frankly, to move forward bills before people can mount a resistance. And sometimes they're successful, and sometimes this lack of transparency has been fought. You know, what's funny is is, uh, Senate Bill 150 
one of the the bills that uh, recently dealt with um, this LGBTQ stuff in this last session that banned uh, gender transitioning surgeries on minors, hormone therapies on minors, uh, that that banned you know same sex bathroom usage, of course, uh, or or opposite sex bathroom usage in public schools. That bill, right, Senate Bill One Fifty, was a lot weaker priorly. And it was being fast-tracked and moved quick. The League of Women Voters calls that out and says, that's awful. That's that's something that they use to go after us. This is this is awful. But that fast-tracking was because, and this is what's funny, is, is if <laughs> the League of Women Voters is very liberal, what they don't realize is this type of behavior is actually stopping a lot more conservative bills from passing. And, and it's funny that they're advocating for changes in rules that if anything would hurt their causes because the grassroots here in Kentucky, the voters that the legislators listen to are a lot more conservative than the League of Women Voters is. And so it's just funny to see them advocating for something that would actually hurt their cause. But so they call out, you know, Senate Bill 150. And, and of course, that bill, uh, you heard a lot of these, uh, you know, representatives claim that, oh, it's amazing. It's awesome. This bill's great. Well, keep in mind that bill accidentally happened. And if it wasn't for the brave actions of several representatives, it wouldn't be nearly as strong as it is. And what did those representatives get for it? Well, because they decided to try to make that bill stronger and went against leadership, several of them lost their committee assignments. People like Josh Calloway, Representative Felicia Rayborn, removed off all committees. Also, you had people like Steve Doan being removed off committees for going against leadership uh, and going against the horse racing cabal that is running so much of our legislature. And you had others removed off their committees. Well, we have some news on that. This coming from, um, of course, Savannah Maddox. She made a post where she she mentioned, and Felicia Rayborn, who was removed off her committees, has made a post saying that they will have their committee assignments uh, re-given to them. That uh, that type of behavior, I guess, the caucus as a whole saw that as pretty negative, and leadership is now being basically forced to put them back on the committees in order to kind of stop a little bit of a mutiny going on within the House. Because there is there are there are factions at war here, and they're going after each other in the primaries. The conservative faction trying to fight the establishment faction off, and trying to say, look, things need to change. And as a way to kind of sweep that, it looks like there may be some rule changes. This has come from Savannah Maddox. Um, and this is what uh, she states, that these rule changes are possible this year that they're talking about um, having. So one rule is each member will have at least one bill heard in committee. Currently, there are four steps to passing a bill. This is from her post. House committee vote, House floor vote, Senate committee vote, and Senate floor vote. In theory, five steps that the governor vetoes the bill and the vetoes overrode. Allowing each member to at least have their bill considered in a committee is an important way to make sure that all citizens of our Commonwealth are equally represented, whether they live in Louisville or Letcher County. Remember when I was talking about the process earlier and I said a bill can get hung up. It can just be never called in a committee. And so each representative getting the opportunity to say, we want one bill heard in a committee. I can pick one bill to have a hearing on. So that way, the, the other members of that committee are forced to hear from the public on this. And that, um, you know, having and forcing these people to be quiet, putting them in a corner saying, your bills don't matter, you can't have a hearing on that. It, this, this helps move bills forward. It's great, it's amazing. 
Next thing is fixing the discharge petition process. If 25 or more members sign a petition to hear a bill, it will come to the House floor for a vote. No more excuses for good bills dying. This is very important in the House. So right now, I believe a discharge petition is 50 or 51 votes. And so what this is, so remember, I went through the normal process where a floor leader has to call the bill. It's got to go through this committee process and everything else. Well, a discharge petition means that uh, priorly, if 51 House members or more uh, sign on and vote that a bill needs to be called as is to the floor to be voted on, well, then it can get pulled forward and voted on, okay? And they're talking about reducing down that number to 25. Very important. Now, of course, discharging is a little bit risky, right? It means you can't have amendments filed on the bills. You can't have any committee substitutes. Uh, you can't have any changes. The bill's kind of called as is and people vote on it. So that gets a little bit risky. But what it means is when you do have a good bill that uh, 25 or more members say, we want this bill called for. This is a good bill. This is something that we should be passing, that members of leadership can't hold it up, that, that, that liberal member of leadership who's not worried about getting conservative things done. See, remember, they hold power. Members of this, this political class a lot of times want to hold power for just simply the sake of power. They don't want to do anything with that power because if they do something, well, then people might get upset and then they won't wield more power. And so to them, right, what's the use of a conservative majority if it doesn't do conservative things? What is the use of that? It's useless. There's no reason for us to have it. And so pushing this forward to where bills can be heard, that's a good bill. So what if your vote yes or no costs one or two people a seat? We've got 80% of the House. It doesn't matter. What does matter is that we get conservative things done. Now, of course, the pushback against this and the reason why that was probably so high is because in the world of electoral politics, getting a person to vote on something is incredibly important if you want to know where they actually stand. It is very easy to give lip service to all kinds of things. It's very difficult to actually vote on them. See, you can pretend, right, to your constituents to be for, I don't know, lower taxes. Tell them, I'm for lower taxes. I'm for less spending. But then at the same time, behind closed doors, tell your uh, uh, donors, the people that really want uh, certain bills passed, hey, look, I'm for that. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell them I'm against it, but really I'm not. You know, you can sit out there and say, I'm pro-life. I'm super pro-life. But until a pro-life bill comes to the floor for you to vote on, well, you can claim yours pro-life from now until the cows come home. Rubber hasn't met the road. You haven't actually had to do anything about it, right? You can claim your for school choice until you have to vote on a school choice bill. Then, well, now you're on the record. And if you really weren't for school choice, if you're really secretly behind the scenes serving the interests of the teachers unions and the administrative cabal that many of these schools have because they were donating money, you're more scared of them than you are your voters, or at least until you had to take a vote, you're able to take advantage of them. And then many had to take a vote that goes away. So having a discharge petition like this, that then forces people to go on the record, very important for knowing where your constituents stand. You as a voter should demand this. Any single representative that votes against that rule is saying they don't want you to know where they stand on important issues that should be untenable for you 
as a constituent of theirs, that you would have a representative that feels that way, that they don't want you to know where they really stand. They don't want to take hard votes on conservative things, doing the right thing that maybe might not be the most popular because, well, that may cost them a seat and they can't handle that. We'll go over what the rest of these rules are after this break. Uh, you're listening to The Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics. And you are back with The Andrew Kubrater Show, your source for Kentucky politics. As always, you want to reach out to the show, email info at theandrewshow.com. For the break, we're going over uh, what Representative Savannah Maddox posted on Facebook about possible rule changes in the implication. <laughs> implications are of such things. We've gone over the first two. Let's go into the next one. Committee chairs and vice chairs will be selected by the committee members themselves. She says the current system occurring favor and controlling votes will no longer be necessary, nor will naming chairs, vice chairs, and the curious vice vice chair position. What this is, what she's talking about here, is going back to the legislative process. Remember uh, that committee chairs wield an awful lot of power in their committee. They get to pick and choose what bills get called forward or not, which means it is the uh, uh, committee on committees, the leadership who is picking who's chair, who's vice chair, and then picking who's on committees. And if you want your bill to be heard in a committee, well, you better be willing to wheel and deal with that there chair. That has created a power imbalance where power gets concentrated into the hands of the few, right? This is how leadership has kept control over what bills pass or not. So people have always wondered, how does this leadership class, how does five or 10 legislators in our General Assembly of 138 have so much power? How do they wield that power? How does that happen? This is how it happens. They assign the committees, they assign the committee chairs, and then people have to curry favor with those committee chairs in order to get their bills heard. Then in turn, now these committee chairs, of course, will do what uh, leadership wants them to do because they want to maintain their chairmanships on committees. But by changing this around where the committees themselves will elect the chair, well, now who has the power in the committee? Who do you answer to when you don't want to call bills for it? Because right now, if leadership wants a bill dead, they just tell a chair not to call it. However, now, if a chair who wants the bills dead or alive comes down to the committee, not a few hands of leadership, but the committee itself, because you have to worry, chair, about getting elected by that body as a whole. So you want to deny everybody's bills from being heard? Well, you will be paying for it because that is who you you're answerable to. That is a big, important change. Another one here, a member must be notified in advance if they are to be removed from a committee and the member has the ability to demand a roll call vote of the committee. If they do not consent to the removal, no more last day, last hour session surprises. This, of course, is pointing to that removal I talked about in the last segment of several members from all their committees right there on the last day. The reason why that removal, of course, was last minute is because going back to the politics of the situation, if in turn leadership wants certain things done, for example, uh, they want maybe gray machines banned because they're, they're uh, a horse racing cabal that really pays the bills up there for them and helps them maintain control. They want this bill dead or they want it called or they want this bill passed. Well, those bills aren't necessarily have a gigantic uh, philosophical take on them all the time. Sometimes it's just a matter of 
is it right? Is it wrong? Especially some other bills, right? Some, some knickknacky bills that really are just doing favors for donors. And you could be more inclined. They could say, look, you know, vote yes on this bill. Help me out. Help out my district. I'll help you out. And that's how it happens. That's how the sausage is made. It's gross. It's disgusting. I know you should vote for bills because they're good or they're bad or what have you. But by waiting to the last day to remove people off committees, you can stay in their good graces. They will do what you ask them to as leadership. And then you can hit them on that last day and you don't have to worry about getting along with them the whole rest of session. Now having to tell them beforehand what you're going to do, if you're going to do something sleazy, uh, can, can push that off. While at the same time now saying, no, no, no leadership just because somebody doesn't do what leadership wants them to do because of course going back to the committee system so you got the chair he gets voted on by the committee as a whole put in place or her and then leadership comes down and says look we don't want this bill called we don't want it to pass we don't want this pushed forward and the committee goes well here's a problem my committee members do want it passed well under the current system where leadership gets to pick and choose who's on committees and they're the sole authority, they can come in and say, you know what, then we'll just remove you off that committee, ecto facto, guess who's no longer chair. But in this situation, they say, look, you wanna remove me for calling this bill forward off my committee, I can turn to my committee members and say, you're trying to remove me because I'm doing what the committee wants me to do, and now they can vote on whether or not they keep me or not. Flies right in the face there, of leadership trying to do this. It, it, it moves, these rules really are moving power out of the hands of few into the body as a whole. And that's the right way. It's supposed to be this way, right? I mean, rewind to that Ford deal. They handed out half a, almost half a billion dollars of taxpayer funds to Ford. And other than five or six members of the legislature, nobody else knew what they were even voting on. They didn't even know who was gonna get the money and they didn't know what they were building. But because leadership wields so much power, they were able to force a bunch of legislators, basically, to vote yes to give $410 million of your dollars, cash, to an unknown entity. And now, with this type of thing, that dispersal of power, we don't have to worry about that happening quite as much. Finally, uh, uh, a few other ones here. Um, the Rules Committee would add four rank-and-file non-leadership members, two from the majority and two from the minority. These members would be selected by majority vote of the respected caucuses. So uh, the Rules Committee, of course, meets to decide what bills get to go forward, of course, get put on the orders of the day, uh, get to meet uh, about what bills will be heard, um, kind of, you know, it's, it's a very powerful committee, decides what the orders of the day will be what they're going to be voting on. And right now that is entirely comprised of people in leadership by saying we're going to have two members of rank of file from the Republicans, two from the Democrats on this. It gives a voice to those who aren't wielding all this power. It gives a voice where they know what's going on. That's important stuff. Finally, there are uh, two more. It says bills must be assigned to committee within five days. So there's no longer can committee on committees just hold a bill. So remember when I talked about all the places a bill could die. It could die in committee on committees. It could never be called by the committee. It could be then never called by uh, the rules, can never put it on the orders of the day. Then the floor leader can't call it. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, you know that same thing can happen in the other body. If it starts in the Senate, then it can happen in the House. If it starts in the House, it can happen in the Senate. Those are all the places that bills can die. What this is attempting to do is to all of this is to address 
the problems of where these bills are dying, where one or two or three people can say, has the power to say that bill's dead. Where right now, one person could say that bill's dead in the committee. Right now, a majority of those in the rules committee could say a bill's dead. A majority of those in the committee on committees could say a bill's dead. We're talking about four or five people, and a lot of times they're the same people too. So you're talking about four people plus one, the chair, can kill a bill that the other 133 members want called, 34 members, but they alone can decide, nah, nah. We don't want to call it. We don't feel like it. And so this is trying to address that. So bills must be assigned to committee within five days. So then now if a chair in the committee doesn't want to call it, well, they're answerable, of course, to the rest of their committee. And then finally it says committees must operate under the same rules as the House floor when applicable. Applicable. Sorry. So, you know, those are some pretty important rule changes and they really revolutionize what can be done in the House. This is a move to make things more conservative, more transparent, and to give more tools in the tool belts of house reps to get their bills passed because right now their only tool is to suck up to corrupt politicians who use the power of handing out money to your campaign accounts to get into their positions of power and then wield it with an iron fist forcing legislators and forcing the legislative process. It means that the individuals in one house seat are now the ones being held accountable there, one, one legislator being held accountable by one House seat has control over the entire process on some of these bills. And all they're concerned about is their own election and their own district. So this takes power out of that person who's only worried about their own skin and said moves it to the body who wants to be able to consider bills as a whole about what's best for their constituents. This is important stuff. And I encourage you, talk to your representatives, your house reps about these rule changes and get their feelings on it. If they express at all any apprehension with any of them, one, let me know. Email me at info at theandrewshow.com. I would love nothing more than to call them out for it. And two, ask them to calmly explain to you on why that would be a bad idea. And remember what I've said here today. Remember my talking points I've given you because I think that's incredibly important to combating them back. See, so often you talk to your legislators, if you're not prepared, if you're not mentally prepared, if you don't have the information, they can just lie to your face and you don't know any better. So that's why paying attention, listening to shows like this, incredibly, incredibly important. Well, y'all, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Kubrider Show. I thank y'all so, so much for joining me. We'll see you back here tomorrow at one o'clock. Have a great rest of your Thursday.